This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium and welcome to the Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. You know, if this was the Jerry Lewis telethon, this is where I'd be asking for some timpani because we've got a new affiliate, a WPAM, a 1450 in Pottsville, Pennsylvania. Thank you so much uh, to WPAM 1450 for making the Conspiracy Show part of your weekly programming schedule. And I love the fact that uh, that WPAM is a classic rock station on AM radio. I love it. You know, I love my geezer rock. So I'm very proud, uh, thrilled uh, to be part of WPAM 1450 Pottsville. Uh, the mighty Aphrodite found this incredible story about a dog, and she was telling me about it last night, and I've asked her to tweet it, at Richard Serrett. It's a, there's a video, and it's a dog, and he's on a dock. I guess someone has just landed some fish. I don't know what kind of fish they are. There's maybe three or four fish on the dock, and their gills are moving, so they're still alive, barely, uh, but they're no longer flopping around. And all around the fish are, are puddles of water, as you can imagine. Now get this. This little mutt is running around trying desperately to move the fish closer to the puddles. He's trying to splash water in the direction of the fish. So that the dog knows the fish are in trouble and they need to get back in the water. And one of the fish stops moving its gills, so it's gone. So the dog moves on to the next fish and tries to save it. This poor little dog seems to be beside itself. It doesn't know what to do. But it appears to know. It appears to care about these other living things. I don't know. Maybe I'm engaging in a little anthropomorphism. That's ascribing human qualities to animals, for those of you whose Roger is across the room. But uh, anyway, check out the story. At, at Richard Serrett, I've just, uh, the mighty Aphrodite has just given me the thumbs up that it has been tweeted. Uh, we're going to examine the, uh, the life and times of the late alien abduction researcher, Dr. John Mack, uh, here shortly, Harvard professor of psychiatry, 
Pulitzer Prize-winning author. Uh, Mack caused quite a stir among his uh, fellow professors at Harvard back in the early 90s when he began, I guess, what what, be, uh, what uh, ended up being almost a 20-year study on the alien abduction phenomenon. And he risked his career and his reputation. In fact, the, the university went to great lengths to threaten him, to take away his tenure, to ruin him by destroying his reputation and character. And after a great deal of, of struggle and legal battles, he, he fought them back, barely surviving. And uh, there was no question at this point he was perceived as an even greater threat. He could have made a difference. He could have brought this subject matter into the mainstream. He could have presented this information in a manner that not even the scientific community could have refuted, some say. Dr. John Mack's character was honorable, solid. His credentials were impeccable. His life was a testimony to scientific integrity. He was ultimately subjected to a formal investigation at the university. He died in 2004 after being struck by a drunk driver in London, England. Now a filmmaker is planning to immortalize Mack's life in a Hollywood movie. Producer Denise David Williams is standing by, but first, just uh, let me remind you, season three of uh, the TV show, The Conspiracy Show, is now underway on Vision TV, Mondays at 10 p.m. Eastern. And this Monday night, episode two, energy healing. Is it possible to heal people using subtle energy? Some call it faith healing. Our good friend Douglas James Cottrell is uh, featured in this episode. Anyway, you can join the debate at www.theconspiracyshow.com. Here's another good friend of The Conspiracy Show who's just plopped himself in the air chair opposite mine, Victor Vigiani, executive director of Zeland Communications. How are you, sir? Oh, there we go. I am just fine. Thank you for the button push. <laughs> <laughs> that I'll do for you. Of course, yes. Uh, no, okay, listen, before, fine, yeah. before we introduce uh, uh, Denise David Williams mm-hmm. into the mix here, why a movie about Dr. John Mack, ab- above and beyond what I've mentioned, why do you think his contribution to the study of ETs, UFOs, consciousness, is worthy of a Hollywood movie? Well, I, I think he, he was sort of a, a pioneer in, in a very non-traditional sense. And I think what, what, he, he, what he did for the, the UFO ET contact issue, he, first of all, he brought it out of the closet, out of the nuts and bolts closet. And I think he moved it into the realm of, of spirituality, into the level of consciousness uh, that creates an understanding of what ET contact might be beyond the sighting of, you know, of crass, craft, you know, those things in the air uh, that we all kind of uh, read, read about in the paper and see in videos. He took it to a level way beyond the, the, the norm. And I think he brought people's experiences to the, to the, to the forefront that, that were just extremely bizarre. And he didn't understand them to begin with. And I think the whole idea behind him understanding these people were going through something uh, transformational, not just sighting a UFO or, or seeing an alien, but actually going through transformational uh, change within themselves, uh, within their consciousness and even their subconsciousness. I think he was the first one to try to, to make sense of all of that. And I think that if, if this movie can do that, if they can, if they can show that, he, that John did this, I think that it will be a success. But I think that's, that's why I think the movie should be made. Uh, there's lots to this man. Um, he, he was a great athlete to begin with. Uh, he had some physical problems that he couldn't play anymore. So he, he, could have, he could have been a number of things. 
Um, but he chose this whole psychiatry um, field, and then he got into it by literally tripping over it. And um, that that whole. When you say get into it, you mean the alien abduction? That's phenomenon. correct. Because yeah. he wasn't a believer. No, not at all. Didn't have an interest in this no. field until he started this this study with what? I think there were about two hundred men and women involved That's in this right. study of these. Mm-hmm repetitive alien encounters. He didn't know what to make of it to begin with, but the more he more he, he delved into it, he began to realize that these people were going through something very, very real. He didn't know exactly what it was. And I, I would imagine that, um, uh, you know, if we had him sitting in the chair next to us right now, he'd probably say, I, I still don't know exactly what it is. You met him? Yes. Um, yes, in his Harvard office for two days. Um, I, right in front of me, I have his book, Abductions, that's kind of the Bible, isn't it? That's right. Yeah, his published in '94, I believe it was, and I spent some time with him in his in his Harvard office for two days uh, in, near Boston, Cambridge, and we were talking about uh, many different things that uh, that had to do with not just the abduction phenomenon, but more specifically about the the the, the child aspects that to do with children, um, young children who have been through this kind of thing. Because I'd contacted him. Uh, several months beforehand, and because I had run into some experiences myself with children as an educator. Yeah, we'll get into that. Yeah, uh, so that we talked at, at length about that, and uh, he gave me a lot of guidance as to how to handle not just with children but with abductees themselves. So, yeah, and absolutely, uh, the strength of this man—you could feel it as soon as you walked in the room. It was just captivating. All right, well, let's. Uh, I'm told we're having uh, some phone problems, so we're gonna we're gonna. Uh Throw caution to the winds here and, and try this out. Okay. We're gonna uh, we're gonna welcome D- Denise David Williams to the program. She began her career as an actor's agent in New York City. Shortly after, she moved to L.A. and attended the graduate Peter Stark producing program at USC. She then began her production experience in the film industry at Lucasfilm as an assistant in pre-production on E.T. and Raiders of the Lost Ark. She advanced to story analyst for Barry Cross at the Movie Company, where she was responsible for developing television material for management clients and held production responsibilities on American Dreamer. She then worked as Director of Creative Affairs for Arkoff International Pictures, where she acquired and developed feature material for both Samuel Arkoff and Louis Arkoff. Denise then hired, was then hired by Daniel Melnick's indie prod company at 20th Century Fox as story editor, where she worked with writers and directors, including Robert Zemeckis, Barry Henry, Lawrence Kasdan, and then Ms. Williams formed her own production company, Make Magic Productions, whose mission is to produce highly entertaining films with global appeal. In 2002, Make Magic produced the industry hit My Dinner with Ovitz, which Variety called Charming. And Universal Chief Ron Meyer and David Geffen called Brilliant. Denise David Williams, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Is it working? We are trying to lock her in here. And not having much success at the moment. We've had uh, some uh, some snafus with the phone lines here. Anyway, my crack producer, Tim Spreen, will uh, continue to work on that. And we'll get her on the air here in just a moment. Denise David Williams standing by from Make Magic Films. Uh, we're talking about Dr. John Mack, the late mm-hmm. Dr. John Mack, Harvard University professor of psychiatry, Pulitzer Prize winning author, Victor Vigiani from Zealand uh, Communications in studio. Uh, so uh, take me back to your meeting with uh, Dr. Mm-hmm. John Mack in his office at Harvard. What's astounding to me was these studies were being conducted you know, while he was at Harvard, the hallowed halls of Harvard University. I mean the, the blowback from the get-go must have been, must have been incredible. I mean who's, who – who sicked the dogs on him? 
Well, it's my understanding uh, through his legal counsel that um, he wasn't given any straight answers to begin with uh, in the meeting that he had with the board of directors uh, of the, of the uh, I guess, the of psychiatry, the head of psychiatry, and he was the head of psychiatry, but they, they chose to um, have a meeting with him and his, and his legal counsel. And the question was asked, who's, who's calling the question on, on the kinds of research that uh, Dr. Mack is able to do? And they didn't give him an answer uh, initially. They, they were just sort of stone-faced. It was just a silence. And uh, later on, uh, John found out that it was Time magazine that was asking questions about the relative um, appropriateness of, uh, of someone of, 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 of max caliber associated with uh, you know, Harvard University talking about aliens and abductions and UFOs and all of that. That's a legitimate question as far as it goes. But if, if they start to – I mean was Time magazine's publishers demanding that he be investigated? They were just asking questions. That's, the, that's my understanding. They just asked uh, the board of governors, whoever the, these people were in charge of uh, sort of calling the question on John, um, they, they, didn't, they didn't like some of the work that Harvard was doing. So they had a, a, you know, they exerted a tremendous amount of pressure as being a, a huge organization, and they felt it was within their realm to, uh, to call the question on John. And uh, whether or not they were legally I- involved in demanding that the, the John give up this research, I don't know. Was he conducting the research on the grounds of Harvard oh, University? Oh, of course, yeah. He, he saw people in his, in his Harvard office. Yes. And he published, yeah. he published on it. He published right. papers. Of course, yes. Peer-reviewed he, articles. That's correct, yeah. And he kept on doing it. And uh, he eventually, he eventually uh, knew and found out that he was striking a very serious nerve, and that's when they, they, they called the question on him. And eventually he was exonerated, and the board um, said he can pursue whatever direction in this research that he, that he wanted to, which, you know allowed him to go on. Uh, we're coming up on a break here. When we come back, hopefully we can uh, connect with Denise David Williams, just uh, having some issues with our telephone lines here. But uh, Tim in the other room is working feverishly on resolving that. If, uh, if we can get Denise David Williams on the line, great. We'll talk about her, her efforts uh, to immortalize the late Dr. John Mack in a Hollywood epic. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show here. Stay with us. Uh, welcome back. Victor Vigiani is here in studio, the executive director of Zeland Communications, and uh, joining us on the line, Denise David Williams, filmmaker, uh, as we discuss the uh, the late Dr. John Mack, alien abduction researcher from Harvard University. Denise David Williams, are you there? I am. Ah, contact. Yes, I can. Can you hear me? Yes. Wonderful. Yes. Hi, Richard. Hello, and welcome. Uh, Hi. Say hello to Victor. Hey, Victor. Whoops, there we go. Great to, great to talk to you, Denise. Just great. Hi, Victor. Thanks. Just give us a quick Reader's Digest version of, of uh, how you... Um, you're in pre-production on this film, I understand, or in the, in the preliminary stages, but how did, you, how did you decide that this might make a good movie, jo- Dr. John Mack? Well, uh, first of all, I want to commend Victor for the, the, the snapshot uh, story that you were giving Victor really like mm-hmm. excellent. Um, of course, you knew Dr. Mack. Um, to answer your question, Richard, it, it really found me. One day in 2007, my ear started ringing. It was kind of freaked me out. I didn't know what it was. I went to some doctors. They just shrugged and said, "We can't help you." And then. After a couple of months, I started to get an intuitive message telling me to go uh, to find a particular person, um, I mean, a a person who had a particular 
profession. I won't go into the details. And and anyway, I found this person in the back of a metaphysical bookstore in where I live in Los Angeles. And when I sat down, she asked me what I did. I said I was a film producer. And she said she had been trying to get people's attention for, for a year, ever since Dr. Mack had been killed. And she told me the story of John Mack. And it, like, just blew me away. And I knew it gave me goosebumps. I knew immediately that uh, it would be an incredible film for a lot of reasons. So, I uh, mean, and, and, and so that was the beginning. So you, you, you sort of glossed over the, the bit about the ringing in the ears. Are you, are you telling us, uh, Denise, that you were an experiencer? Uh, no, no, not really. I mean, I've had many, well, I've had many metaphysical experiences. That's very, it, it's very natural to me. I don't know if that they're comparable to what Dr. Mack was studying. Um, but, but I'm highly intuitive. And when I say I heard a voice in my head, that comes very, I'm not crazy. That just comes very naturally to me to be connected to whatever it is that sort of guides us and gives us wisdom when we need it. And and so I trusted that voice when it said, actually what it said to me was, find a medical intuitive. Interesting. That's what it said to me. Interesting. And so I said, huh, find a medical intuitive. And it would not leave me alone. I mean, it was very insistent. And... I had a book on my shelf written by a kind of a very pretty well-known medical intuitive called Marilyn Mace, uh, Carolyn Mace, and I called her office, and they said she doesn't do that one-on-one, but here's the name of someone that, you know, does. We are not vouching for her, and that's the woman who I made the appointment with, and when I walked into the room within three minutes was sharing the story of John Mack with me. It's almost so, unfolding I like this. I feel like I was called to that. I was, you know, called to the story. It's almost unfolding like the Celestine prophecies, where it's sort of one piece of serendipity followed by another, followed by another, and ultimately, you know, leading someplace. Uh, as a right. as, as a as a storyteller, as a filmmaker, what aspect of Dr. Mack's life is the most fascinating for you? Is it the alien abduction research? Is it this David and Goliath struggle of him versus Harvard University? It's both because they are interchangeable, and and that's and the conflict lies in Harvard, basically conducting a witch hunt against him, and uh, in my mind, really makes John Mack the perfect hero. You know, it's a hero's journey for for a protagonist for a film. So, um, it's we will begin when he starts his work around the early 90s with the with the abductees and follow through until his death. So, I mean, in addition to um, ensuring the legacy of John Mack's work, it's, it's actually even bigger than John Mack. And John Mack was the first one to say that. He would say, this is not about me. And uh, he was a very humble man, he was a very compassionate man, but he also realized that what he was studying was a lot bigger than just, you know, the head of psychiatry at Harvard. And what we're doing with the film is picking up the torch that he brought, you know, to a certain place and moving, carrying it forward. 
Why? Because in my opinion, this is the, the biggest story of our times. Because really what John Matt was addressing was what he was saying is we're not alone in the universe. And it's time that we open up to that and, you know, and be open to that because it's, it's happening. So that's an even bigger purpose for this film. Let me get uh, Victor Vigiani in here. Excuse me, Denise. Go ahead, Victor. I just wanted to uh, just uh, take off on an idea that you've just been talking about, and this being bigger than him, and and that was quite clear in in most of my discussions with him and everything that he wrote. He was always writing about other people, and he really put himself in the background, Uh, although his his views on that. He always described this as a battle over worldviews, and that was one of his key statements that he made uh, in most of his lectures, that this whole materialistic uh, scientific worldview versus the subtle realm that he that he tried to, the, the the doors to the subtle realm that he tried to open up um you know when in your mind the way you see this 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 movie or this story evolving um what's your starting point going to be like how are you you grab people to begin with what, what's the vision that you might have in, in mind as to how this whole thing i'm trying to you know picture it in my own mind on, on the screen what's your vision for that well you know I, we we don't even have a writer yet so mm-hmm. to it would be difficult to say how the story structurally will be presented. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. But I, we do have a story outline, which is somewhat linear. It just takes the narrative from when he begins his work and when, and, and, and then when he's killed in 2004. So I don't really know yet, Victor. That's part of the development process. It'll be exciting and challenging and... Uh, you know, important. It's the most important process mm-hmm. uh, is developing the script yeah. for John's story because we, you know, we want it to be, we want it to do justice to the not just to John but to the subject matter. Mm-hmm. That's so, an interesting uh, challenge because this, this uh, you don't obviously in, in, when you're making a Hollywood movie, you uh, mean you don't want to preach to the choir. You have to spread your net far and wide. So. How do you make this story accessible to people who, who may not even contemplate the, the idea of you know whether we're alone in the universe, let, let alone uh, you know whether people are being uh, abducted by aliens and, and, and so forth? How do you how do you sell this story? Well, I think it's a no-brainer because truly, there everyone on the planet has an opinion about alien abduction, whether it's, oh, yeah, of course there are, there's other intelligent life, or, no, you got to be out of your mind to think that there is intelligent life. So right there you've got inherent controversy, which sells a movie, you know, on its own. But more specifically, when we create a character, the character of John Mack as a protagonist in the story, we need to believe that he believes because we're not going to try to win anybody over. We're not trying to proselytize and convince anybody of anything. But when they take the journey, when they take John Mack's journey and see how committed he became and how he went from being a left brain, rationalistic worldview kind of guy to becoming a heart based. And these are his words, heart based, intuitive, spiritual man. You can't help but, come out of the theater and go, wow, and think about it. And so that's that's the power of the story, and it will really sell itself. 
in my opinion. I think what's, what, what you're describing is initially I think there's going to be some sort of uh, taste of normalcy as, as the whole thing unfolds, as the story unfolds, and that you'll have that sort of normal impetus as to what a you know, Harvard University uh, um, you know, doctor of psychiatry would be doing, and then all of a sudden you're going to have to confront the idea of the most bizarre and the most presumptuous nature of this, of this topic, and the juxtaposition of those two ideas, those two worldviews, is going to be a, a rather a climactic part of the whole thing when he actually, you know, uh, when, when the sort of the euphoria or the, the discovery in his, his mind is there is something going on here that we just must pay attention to. So the transition from the normal part of a movie or story into this new part must be a real challenge for you. Well, it's, that's the creative process. That's what we do, and uh, you know, we will use all of our experience and our brains and our intuition and, and resources. We have an incredible resources. The Max family has granted us access to all of Dr. Max's personal archives, which has an unpublished autobiography that he wrote about the Harvard debacle, and we have been given permission by some of Dr. Max's patients, some of his um, experiencers. Um, we have access to their clinical sessions with Dr. Mack, which is incredible. So we have incredible resources, and uh, that's, that's the challenge. Filmmaker Denise... Together. Sorry, filmmaker Denise David Williams uh, is with us, and uh, we're talking about a, a movie in the early uh, stages of development. It's uh, the life of the late Dr. John Mack, Harvard psychiatry professor, Pulitzer Prize-winning uh, author, and uh, a man who conducted really some seminal research into alien abductions within the hallowed halls of Harvard University. Imagine conducting these scientific, clinically scientific clinical scientific studies uh, of the alien abduction phenomenon, and you can imagine the blowback from his, his peers. They tried to uh, discredit him, tried to uh, fire him. Uh, Victor Vigiani in studio from Zeland News Network. Uh, let me, we're coming up on a break here in a few moments, but let's get this, this part of the discussion going anyway, and then we can continue on the side. And, and uh, I'll throw this out to you, Victor, as well, and I'll get Denise to chime in here. I want, I want to talk about Dr. Mack's work with children, because I understand that, you know, children were, were pivotal with him, I mean, and, and what they experienced. And, and, Victor, you were telling me about the, the aerial school in South Africa. I know as a school principal, you've had first, you know, first-hand experiences with, with potential child abductees. So let me start with you, Victor. Talk, talk to me about why children were so important to Dr. Mack's work. Well, I, I would imagine that the, that the experience that he had in the aerial school in South Africa was probably one of the, the most um, gut-wrenching for him in interviewing these children. Um, Denise might want to describe it, too, uh, when she uh, responds to your question. But going down there uh, with his staff and, um, first of all, having heard that, that some sort of craft landed outside the school in a schoolyard, and there were a number of children uh, who saw this thing land, and all the teachers were at a, a staff meeting at the time, so there were, there were no teachers on yard supervision. It was a rather large yard, as, as you can imagine. Uh, there were some older students who were supervising this, uh, the, the other children, the, the really young ones, and uh, four or five of the young children actually saw a craft land, 
and um, beings get out of it and then bounce around, not sort of walk around, but almost like floating around, and the children actually move towards these, uh, these beings uh, in, in, within several meters of them and um, somehow receive telepathic messages from, um, from these beings. And that's, you know, I don't want to belabor the whole story, but after a while, they started telling these stories. And I think John found out about it. I'm not exactly sure how he did find out about it, but um, I know he did. And he interviewed these children, three or four of them. There's some great uh, audio uh, interviews of these children. And they all, each one of them individually spoke about telepathic communications, about the state of the planet, and that the planet was becoming too technologized or something like that that the children found out about. And that they were ruining the earth and there were, we need to repair the earth. We need to you know, make a, a, a better place to live. And all of the children had the exact same message, which is something that none of them had ever described before. And I think that um, that kind of thing through the innocent eyes of a child it's very, very riveting. When you hear a child talk that authentically about an experience, children don't make up things like that. And uh, uh, they just don't. Even though they have vivid imaginations, this is far beyond anything they could ever um, you know, c- uh, confabulate. And I think John was taken by all of that. And in the interviews, as he speaks to each one of them, you can tell by the kinds of questions that he's asking, he is extremely intent on trying to figure out exactly what these children went through. Uh, Denise, will the aerial school... Of, uh, well, we're coming up on a break, but I'll get you to answer this when we come back, and whether the aerial school experience... Uh, and Dr. John Max interviews with these these children, these school children, whether that will feature uh, or loom large in your upcoming film on the late Dr. John Mack. Back with more of my conversation with filmmaker Denise David Williams and Victor Vigiani from Zealand News Network here on the Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. The what life and we times need to test at this point is whether we can go deep enough into our uh, higher selves, if you will, our spiritual possibilities, our capacity for transcending enmity to address the real problems that we're facing in the world now. The nationalisms that have divided us, uh, they're obsolete in the current global context because the problems we're facing now, the environmental problems, acid rain, the health problems, the deterioration of the ozone uh, layer, the warming trend. These are vast problems that are causing the planet itself to die. So that's going to be the test that we're going to face and whether, and it's important that we uh, be able to bring our creativity to those problems. And the the whole militarization enmity structure has just consumed the the kinds of energies and imagination that we need to, to look at the problems that the world is facing all around us now. There you have it. That's the man of the hour, the late Dr. John Mack, Harvard psychiatry professor, Pulitzer Prize-winning author, and uh, the man who really did some of the seminal research into alien abductions. Uh, and he is, we hope, soon to be immortalized in film. Uh, Denise David Williams is with us from Make Magic Productions, and she's hoping uh, to bring Dr. John Mack's uh, life to the big screen. And in studio, Victor Vigiani from Zealand Communications, who joins us here on the uh, the Conspiracy Show from time to time. And uh, Denise, before the break, I was asking uh, Victor about the aerial school incident uh, where these school children encountered or had some sort of uh, experience with the occupants of uh, this craft. Uh, Is that going to to be a a significant... um, you know, part of the film? Is that going to be, you know, be featured in the film? 
It, we we will see that in the film, but first I want to go back and address a question that you asked before the break about Dr. Mack's interest in children. He was initially trained as a child psychiatrist, and he wrote a book and did studies on the effect of nuclear testing on the, the trauma on children uh, on nuclear war, and so it was a lifelong study for him. And and um, and as I said, he was trained as a Initially, that's what he worked in as a child psychiatrist. So in in the story, in, he's in the midst of the Harvard trial, and he's they're really giving him a hell of a time. And he gets a call from BBC reporter Tim Leach asking for Dr. Mack, uh, asking this from, for a statement from Dr. Mack about the aerial school sighting. And he had Dr. John didn't know what he was talking about. So Tim Leach filled him in, and John, happy to get out of Dodge because, you know, Harvard was giving him such a hard time, jumped on a plane, didn't tell anybody, and went down to Zimbabwe. And uh, he was actually welcomed by the headmaster because the children were having nightmares, and the headmaster wanted John to make some sense of it. And then Victor was saying how... Uh, you can see some of the footage on Make Magic Productions' website or even on YouTube uh, of Dr. Mack talking individually to these uncoached children, and the authenticity and sincerity is undeniable. And There were 62 of them in the schoolyard, and they simultaneously had a sighting. And as Victor was saying, they were the beings transmitted information to them telepathically. And... Um, so, yes, that will definitely be part of the story because, in a sense, it vindicated him when, you know, as he's experiencing the Harvard trial and here he's assisting these children who, uh, like I said, were so credible and sincere. Um, so it's a powerful juxtaposition, <clears throat> and it'll be in the film. There were approximately 200 men and women who were part of Dr. Mack's study. Uh, over the uh... well, initially, oh, initially, initially okay. he saw <clears throat> he saw you know about two hundred. But then he traveled the world and he studied other cultures. He met with African shaman and Australian Aborigines, and and the stories it blew his mind because they corroborated. They were saying, telling the same stories. He said on one of the talk shows, when you have an African bushman and a new upscale New England housewife telling the same story. We've got to take the conversation seriously. So by the time, you know, after four or five years of his study, he had he had met with hundreds of people and um, collected a lot of data. And some of that is in his book, Abduction. And then when you see his last book called Passport to the Cosmos, you can see the transformation that he himself went through. Um, because obviously that's important for for the character in the film that he also change and in indeed he really did. I mean the book is much more nuanced and complex. And he here here's what Dr. Mack did that was different from people like Bud Hopkins and David Jacobs who were also researchers. I mean aside from John having incredible credentials and um, being highly esteemed in his field, he went from saying that the experiences were three-dimensional 
to coming to believe after several years that they were interdimensional. And that was a game changer. And that's, you know, I mean, Harvard had said to him, John, if only you had said you had discovered a new psychiatric syndrome, but you're asking us to redefine reality, which is what John Mack said. In order to truly understand these experiences, we have to change the paradigm by which we have believed in for so long, especially in Western culture. You know, we we are so locked into if we don't feel something or see something or touch something that it doesn't exist. And we're, you know, we're one of the last cultures on the planet to be so rigid in that thinking. And that's what John was challenging. And Harvard, Alan Dershowitz, who was a law professor at Harvard at the time, he got wind of this secret committee and uh, he, there's a quote that ended up in the New York Times that he said, isn't it interesting that a, at a place of esteemed higher learning such as Harvard, that angels are okay, but aliens are not? And he thought it was a travesty that John's academic freedom was being challenged. So that's a whole nother sort of sub part to the film, you know, academic freedom. Indeed. Angels um, or these yeah. uh, these visitors, maybe they're, you know, they're both, they're talking about the same thing. You know, who knows when we uh, finally figure it all out. Uh, we'll uh, step away momentarily, come back. Denise David Williams from Make Magic Productions, hoping to immortalize the late Dr. John Mack in film. Victor Vigiani from Zeland Communications here in studio. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Welcome back. Say hello on Twitter at Richard Serrett, the website richardserrett.com, S-Y-R-E-T-T.com. And uh, Denise David Williams from Make Magic Productions is with us, and she's hoping to uh, to bring uh, the life, career, and uh, the life and times of the late Dr. John Mack to the big screen. Uh, Denise, this is a, 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 a – I know that crowdfunding plays a large part in um, the initial stages of this film in, in – in, um, in, in, you know, getting some, some much-needed capital. Tell us about how that's going. Um, it's going well, and I would also ask your listeners to, to go to johnmacmovie.com and check it out, and, and uh, if they feel so moved to, to make a contribution or at least, you know, send it along to their email list. Because <clears throat> what I found in... Uh, pitching it to several companies in Hollywood was that everyone kind of has their idea of how the story should be told. And I understand that. You know, I I, I know that's the way it works. But it's really my responsibility um, to ensure that the story is told in the way that really – you know, has integrity and is authentic and does justice to, to Dr. Mack. So what we decided to do was raise development money for the script, not for the whole film, just for the script, um, through Indiegogo.com. And uh, that's that's what the money is going to be used for, to hire a writer, to pay uh, development costs, and to, to develop a script so that we can then go back into mainstream Hollywood, have the picture financed fully, and have, you know, a, a big mainstream motion picture. Um, it's not that really unconventional what we're doing. Uh, it's just, you know, it's independent 
money. Not at all. Independent money. In fact, there there was an Academy Award-winning documentary uh, this year that I believe was funded um, uh, either Indiegogo or one of the crowdfunding uh, websites. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Victor Vigiani, uh, jump in here. Yeah, I just wanted to um, broach the issue with you. You've, you've obviously got a lot of research in front of you to, to go through and uh, with the screenwriters and uh, the information that the Mac family's given you. Um, you, 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 will, you will come to know him through that and you've probably, you know, there are other ways that you've um, obviously gotten to know the man. Um, might there be, um, and I know the way John um, did express this whole idea of, of, of connected consciousness, that we're all in some way or another uh, connected in a, in a very subtle way. Are there other ways that you've gotten to know John Mack? Well, I've lived with this for seven years now. <laughs> so um, I, I feel a real kinship with John Mack. Um, I feel very protective of his legacy. I feel a love for him and a tremendous respect. And, um, you know, I will do everything that I possibly can to make sure that the story is you know, done, uh, does him justice and the subject matter justice. So, um, you know, I, I do feel close to him for, you know, when you're steeped in John Mack material for seven years, it's, you know, that's inevitable that that's going to happen. Is, is there a mystery angle to this, this film as well? Denise, I'm, I'm wondering about, you know, the, the, Whoever these people were, whether it was Time Magazine that pressured Harvard to essentially, you know, put him on trial, um, is it possible that those same individuals may have been responsible for his death? I know the official cause was, you know, he was hit by a drunk driver, but you know, there are those uh, on, who live online who 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 think that that there may have been uh, uh, some nefarious hands at work here. Um, yeah, I know there are, and I'm not one of them. Uh, according to the official record and according to the, the, the Mac family, he was, you know, have you guys ever been in London and crossed oh, the street yes. and yes. got to look? Right. So, you know, it happens to the best of us. You look the wrong way, and that's what happened, and he was hit by a drunk driver. And um, so that is the official record, and... Um, so I, I don't personally uh, subscribe to the conspiracy theory. Had he, had he lived and continued his work at Harvard, what do you think 10 years later? What, where would we be in terms of our understanding of, of all that he was about, alien abductions and, 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 uh, and so forth? Well, he had really moved on from the study of alien abduction. After the whole Harvard thing, he was tired and... And he found himself basically preaching to the choir. You know, he, he, he they had shut him down enough. So, so you know, he he kind of moved on. And what he was doing, well, he moved on, but he was still a changed man, and he was still and and continued to study in the realm of metaphysics. So he was studying with a physicist uh, continued consciousness. In other words, what happens after we die? And so, you know, it, it falls under, a, you could say it falls under the same umbrella. Uh, what is, you know, interdimensional 
what, you know, what happens to us? Is there other life? It's all connected. So I think he would have, he would have gone a lot further with that work. He was fascinated with that, um, and he was very, you know, very into it. Who do you have in mind for uh, Dr. John Mack? Who will play him? Wow. You know, it really depends. And once we have a script in hand, it, it would become maybe more obvious. Um, Daniel Day-Lewis is always brilliant, and I think he seems to embody some of the John Mack, you know, heart and depth and intrigue. What about John Malkovich? Uh, he, who? John Malkovich. No. No, he's not right. All right. No, okay. There I am with my producer hat. <laughs> okay. All right. Victor, over to you, Victor. Actually, uh, when, Richard, when, it's a, when Richard said that, I, I, just, uh, I was watching a movie last night with John Malkovich in it, and I don't know. <laughs> um, I, I wanted to kind of um, throw something at you, too, in terms of it's similar to what um, Richard just asked you in terms of where we might be if John was still alive. Uh, did, he, did, he was involved in some sort of activism. Um, was it with Carl Sagan? I'm not quite sure. In, with, with, a, with the nuclear issue, he did some sort of march or whatever. I, I remember reading something about that. But would you characterize... Well, yeah, that was early. Yeah, early. Uh, yeah long, long before he yeah. got involved here. Yeah. Would you categorize him or would you place him uh, in in the mode of an activist or, or, or something different. I know there's a lot of people who are involved in this issue right now in disclosure and wanting the government to, to come forward and, and all of that. Would you, cons- would you um, uh, portray him as an activist? Or could, could he have been an activist if, if things had have gone well, another I mean, way? Early on in his life, he was clearly an activist, and his family participated with him. They, they were at the Nevada uh, anti-nuclear test site. They were protesting uh, his kids were there. His wife was there. They got arrested. It was a you know a whole big thing. He didn't get arrested. He paid the fine. Um, but um, so yeah, he he was clearly an activist, um, and you could say that he was an activist for abductees too. I mean. In terms of all of that, I think you know when you get deeper inside this issue, not just the abduction issue, but the whole idea of you know we're not alone and 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 the government the way they're handling the whole issue, it gets inside of you to a point where you have to do something about it. And um, in my discussions with him and uh, watching him and listening to him uh, talk to Bud Hopkins in their in their dialogue in Boston, I think it was in '96 or '97 when they met uh, on stage to talk about the whole. Uh, contrasting views. John struck struck me as um, almost becoming frustrated with, with the, the, the lack of, um, of movement towards understanding all of that. Uh, do you think that frustration w- would have led him to become more prominent and, and demanding from his position as a, uh, you know, in, in, in Cambridge? Uh, do you think he would have done that, become more vocal um, in, in a more public manner? No, because I remember that that. Uh, debate, by the way, and it was very contentious between Bud and John. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think he had reached, he had done everything that he could do. And uh, that's why I feel like we're picking up the torch and carrying on for him. Mm-hmm. There, you know, he did, he did his part. That's how I see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He kicked the ball way down the road. And now did. we're going to you know, continue on. Victor was hinting at earlier, uh, Denise, about some of the 
uh, the, the pressure that was brought to bear on, on Dr. Mack and some of the forces that were at work, uh, that, you know, maybe he was perceived as a threat, this information. Uh, and, and we talk a lot about that on this program, uh, this, uh, you know, this uh, truth embargo. Uh, I'm wondering uh, whether you think those same forces might make it difficult for this film to get made the way that you want it to get made. Um, no, I don't think so. This film is going to get made. There's no doubt in my mind. It's meant to be. It's everything that we've needed so far has fallen into place. And um, so I am, I'm not concerned about that in the least. Um, what was it? You said something else that I wanted to address, but it went right out of my head. Well, just the, 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 um, the pressures that were – the forces that Dr. Mack oh, had to contend oh, with. I, I mean, who are they? Yeah, I remember. Who, who are they? So, you know, human beings, generally speaking, do not like change, right? I mean, we are all very resistant to change. And Harvard, as an institution, uh, and represents a certain worldview – was uh, the epitome of that. It's, it's, although it's this esteemed place of higher learning, it did not want to have to stretch into what John Mack was asking of them. It, 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 so I don't think it was as much a, you know, a evil conspiracy thing as resisting what is, resisting the status quo. You know, it didn't, it just, it resisted change. And the change was that John Mack was asking for was very frightening. I mean, it, it, it takes the foundation out from our very world, our very idea of, you know, of how we live. So I think it was more fear and uh, of change and um, of, of, you know, it, it, John was asking a lot. I'll and, say. I'll uh, say. Yes. Listen, we're, we're just about out of time it. here. Uh, very quickly, uh, in your uh, your your best case scenario, when do you expect to see the John Doctor John Mack story up on the big screen? Well, we're going to spend the next three to four or five months developing the script, and then we'll be off and running. I mean, uh, I just envision people tripping over themselves to want to be involved in this project because the, the projects like this don't come along very often. All right. Leave, leave us with a website, Denise. JohnMacMovie.com. JohnMacMovie.com. Okay. Movie.com. Or Make Magic. Make Magic. Make Magic Productions. Make Magic Productions. All right. Thank you so much, uh-huh. Denise. I've enjoyed this conversation. Thank you, Richard. Thank you. Denise David-Williams, Make Magic Productions. Victor Vigiani, always a pleasure. Thank you. It has been a pleasure. Opening these doors is always um, a favorite of mine with you. All right, my friend. Hey, just a quick reminder. November the 16th, that's a Sunday, an all-day event, Regent Theatre in Oshawa. I'm bringing six amazing speakers to town. It's called Follow the Truth, the Conspiracy Show Summit. More information, www.followthetruth.tv. Call the box office, 905 721 Three three nine zero five seven two one nine nine three three. Hey, thanks for inviting me into your homes. This is the Conspiracy Show, and my name is Richard Serrett. Before we get started, 
I, um, I gave out the wrong number for the box office at the Regent Theatre in Oshawa. What a horrible self-promoter I am. Uh, I was uh, talking earlier about Follow the Truth, the Conspiracy Show Summit, Sunday, November the 16th. It's an all-day event at the Regent Theatre in Oshawa. I'm bringing six amazing speakers to town, Dr. Ronald Mallett, theoretical physicist from the University of Connecticut to talk about time travel. He's building a, or at least he's sort of conceptualized a theoretical time machine that he says works. He just needs the funding and the resources to bring it to fruition. So Dr. Mallett will be there. Uh, Jim Penniston, retired U.S. Air Force officer who was one of the witnesses at the Bentwaters Air Force Base or Woodbridge Air Force Base in the south of England in December 1980, actually uh, walked around and, and, and put his hand on this uh, strange craft the Rendlesham Forest UFO incident. It's, it's Britain's Roswell, if you will. Speaking of Roswell, Dawn Schmidt will also be here uh, to talk about uh, the Roswell. She's the world's foremost investigator. Patty Greer on crop circles. Chilvich talks about, he's an electrical engineer, talks about uh, evidence that uh, we are living in a digital simulation. Are we living in the matrix? That's Jim Elvich. And uh, Richard Dewhurst, Emmy Award-winning writer, um, talks about the ancient giants who ruled America. That's Sunday, November the 16th at the Regent Theatre in Oshawa. Followthetruth.tv. That's the website. Now, here's the box office number, the correct box office. It's 905-721-3399. 905-721-3399. And mention the code word Roswell and receive a 25, 25% discount. 25% discount. Mention the word Roswell, 905-721-3399. All right, now this is going to be interesting because uh, we are still having some phone issues and uh, we're trying to get a hold of somebody and I didn't want to reveal. I didn't want to reveal who we're trying to get a hold of. I didn't want to promote the fact that this uh, gentleman was uh, on the program in case we couldn't get him because we've tried in the past and we failed. Anyway, um, we may end up doing some open lines here. I'll get the word from my producer. But I, I wanted to, to say something else. Obviously, the situation in Ferguson, Missouri, uh, continues to uh, garner a lot of attention, and deservedly so. Uh, anytime an 18-year-old um, person is, is shot dead in the street, unarmed uh, by those who are, have, have sworn uh, you know, to, to, to protect and serve, that is cause for immeasurable concern. Uh, but I want to share what with you what I believe is a very astute commentary on the situation there. It's from a, a gentleman by the name of Doug Giles, who is the author of Rise, Kill, and Eat, A Theology of Hunting from Genesis to Revelation. I may say this comes from an unlikely quarter, but anyway, this is Doug Giles. As we've seen this past week in Ferguson, Missouri, folks are fed up and ready to break crap if they have, if they have to in order to bring about justice, and I dig that spirit. However, and this is just my advice, before we start burning the mother down, we should take, make certain that the war we wage, the cause we champion, and the person we support is noble and legit. With that in mind, herewith are nine things to consider before you burn your neighborhood or city down to the ground. Check it out. Prior to rioting, looting, and pillaging, and taking off a week to trash the place in which you live and risk being tear-gassed, shot, and, or, or even run over by uh, a new army tank, Ask yourself these nine diagnostic questions. Has the man I want to champion just been exposed on CCV stealing Swisher Sweet cigars by the armload from a convenience store? Did this selfsame man violently grab, shove, and intimidate a tiny little store clerk? Did the man I'm supporting 
slip off the camera a lot via Twitter. Did the man I'm ready to go to bat for make gang signs quite often as he sat for photographic portraits taken by his friends? Also, before you go out on a limb in a revolution, try to be certain that the person you're willing to go to jail for didn't climb into a cop's car and then punch him in the face. Similarly, make sure your champion didn't try to take the police officer's firearm before you paint him as a damsel in distress. Now, this, th these are the words of, of Doug Giles, author of Rise, Kill, and Eat, a theology of hunting from Genesis to Revelation, uh, talking about the, uh, well, what's going on down in Ferguson, Missouri, in the wake of the, uh, the shooting of this unarmed uh, young man, Michael Brown. So I just thought that was a very uh, interesting comment, and I wanted to share that with you. Now, Tim, in the other room, what is happening with our phones? Uh, Tim has run down the hall to uh, master control uh, to see if we can't resolve this. Our phones are dead, and um, that makes f uh, live uh, or that makes live talk radio kind of difficult. Was someone just trying to get my attention on the window? No. Okay, I thought that might have been Tim. Uh, I had um, someone in mind to bring onto the program. Someone I've been trying to get on the program for quite some time. There's Tim. Tim, how are we doing? The f no, the phones are down. Tim is throwing his hands up in the air. He's in <laughs> distress, uh, which precludes us from doing open lines as well. Uh, but as luck would have it, I have someone here in studio who's been uh, hanging around, and I'm going to press him into service. He's our, uh, our good friend from Zealand Communications, and uh, we were talking recently with... Uh, a filmmaker uh, who is attempting to make a major Hollywood film about the, uh, the the life of the late Dr. John Mack, Harvard University professor and alien abduction researcher. So uh, while we uh, attempt to get these phones working, I'm just going to uh, welcome once again Victor Vigiani. How are you, my friend? Just fine, and thank you for having me. And thank uh, you for being yes. uh, there at this uh, pleasure at this moment. Listen, um, you're involved in a, uh, a rather interesting UFO conference yourself. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to spend, because that's happening very soon, right? That's correct, yeah. Uh, tell me about that. It'll be uh, just north of Toronto, in Schaumburg, uh, Ontario. And um, it's called ET Intelligence, uh, the Consciousness Connection. And uh, it's sort of a retreat. Uh, it's framed as a retreat. It's a getaway for people to uh, to come and listen to several, um, several speakers. Uh, Daniel Sheehan will be there, a uh, lawyer and activist. Um, as a matter of fact, he was uh, one of the people who um, who represented John John Mack uh, in front of the the Harvard uh, uh, lynching mob uh, uh, when when John Mack was called into question about his research with abductees. Yeah, that was a, re a real witch trial, wasn't oh, it? Oh, for sure, absolutely. Uh, it you know in in my conversations with Daniel. Um, I was away in California this this past week, and he made it very very clear that uh, the organization Time, uh, Time Magazine or Time Warner, whoever they were at that time, were responsible for um, flapping some wings in the direction of uh, of, of Cambridge, uh, Harvard University, and um, asking the board of directors to call the question on John Mack to uh, make him stop investigating such a bizarre thing as alien abductions. And uh, Daniel did represent him at the time, and uh, he did a very good job of exonerating uh, John. And the board allowed John to continue with his work. 
Um, so that, that's one of the things. He's one of the speakers who's going to be there. Uh, Grant Cameron, uh, a Canadian UFO researcher, uh, who's just recently been becoming more and more involved in his whole consciousness connection uh, with the extraterrestrial factor that uh, seems to be, um, you know, there's a truth embargo, so engaging the planet. We know Grant from presidential UFOs. He's the one that scours the presidential libraries for all these documents relating to UFOs. He's been on the program and talked that's to us a number of times. That's right. Yes. So he'll be there. He'll be there. Um, I, I'll be doing some presenting. I, I'll, my major role there will be as a moderator. Um, however, I will um, uh, do some pres- presenting. Uh, I think on day two or three I'm, I'm scheduled to, to, to speak. And I'm hoping to um, uh, possibly bring up the idea uh, of um, still throwing it around, of actually doing some work uh, and talking about uh, John Mack and his work, because he's the one who began all of this kind of thing uh, in terms of uh, the, the spirituality and the, and the consciousness connection among all the among all creatures, you know, there's there's this consciousness connection that we are all linked in some way, and uh, he's of the opinion, uh, many of us are, anyways, that um, ET is attempting to to communicate with us not just by these gross sightings of of, of craft, but in other kinds of ways uh, that John Mack initially talked about in, uh, in his first book, Abduction, and then eventually into uh, his 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 last book, uh, Passport to the Cosmos. And that's one of the very strong themes in that book, that we are being contacted in ways that we just might not understand. So I'd, I'd like to maybe address that whole issue at the retreat coming up. It's coming up um, August 28th to 31st, I believe, yes, 28th to 31st in Schaumburg. All right. I, I, you know, you, have not, uh, you and I have never sat down uh, before a microphone and talked about this, to my knowledge. Mm-hmm. Uh, and following our conversation about Dr. John Mack and his research into alien abductees, I want to talk to you to you about your experiences because you were a, a school principal mm-hmm. for many years right. in the Catholic school board. That's correct. And you had students that you suspected were abductees. And there's there's a couple of interesting cases, and, and uh, let's let's begin that conversation now if we could. Well, it's it's rather disturbing for me to even think about it again, uh, Richard, because it was so uh, intense at the time. Uh, having been an administrator for the for the uh, Catholic School Board um, in several schools, uh, approximately nine schools that, that I was in charge of for uh, about 30 years in, in that tenure, uh, the second last school, as I recall, yes, I was the second last school I was at. Uh, I was there for five years, and I believe it was in my second last year there. And I'd been on the radio um, uh, with another radio station talking about the whole UFO issue, and I was sort of a regular. And I, I didn't make a big deal about it in my career, and I just kept on doing it. No one said anything to me in an official way. I just kept on doing it. And um, it was one morning uh, that, that struck me um, very, very strongly, this little fellow who he'd had a lot of trouble with. He was in grade two. We'll call him Tommy for now, okay? He came in one day, and Tommy had all kinds of behavioral issues. We didn't know what to do with Tommy. He would do, he would hit, bite, scream, uh, run out of the classroom, very, an uncontrollable child. And he had several parental issues and and so on and so forth. He came in one morning, and um, he had his lunch bag all tattered, and his, and his shirt was all kind of unraveled inside out, and his hair was all askew, and he was really just in a foul, foul mood. I could tell because he was late. It was about 9.30. So he came in and attempted to get in the class. I said, no, Tommy, come here. What's wrong? You're, you're late. Come and sit down with me, and we'll talk. You just look unsettled. So I brought him into the office, and he sat in the chair, and he was very frumped up. He was just beside himself. I said, this is not going to be a good day for you, is it, Tommy? He said, no, it's not. I said, how come? And then he said, I didn't sleep well last night. I didn't sleep. Just couldn't sleep. 
I said, you couldn't sleep. Well, you don't, you don't look like you've slept well at all because his face was all, you know, that, that, that look that children have um, or that you get to know. And I said, why didn't you sleep well? And he looked from side to side and he said, they came back. And I said, what do you mean they came back? And he said, the monsters, the little monsters. And at that time I'd been, you know, dealing with individuals that would, you know, discuss with me being taken and experienced this, this so-called alien abduction phenomenon. And I didn't link the two at, at the time. But then again, I said, well, how do they, how, where are they? You see, they're at the foot of my bed and behind my dresser. And I said, okay, and this began to make more sense. And I didn't want to lead them on too much, you know. I, you don't do that with children. You try to get as authentic an answer as you can. But knowing full well what this might turn into, I said, well, how do they get into your room? And he said, well, there's the orange lights outside. And this is one of the things that abductees always talk about, this light outside their window. And how do they get into the room? They come right through the window. And this is exactly what Tommy said to me. They come in my window. He said, I said, well, do they open the window? He said, no, they come through my window. And I just, you know, I was sitting in my office and principal of the school, a child sitting in front of me. I didn't what know. What do you do with that? <laughs> what do I do with it? Um, well, what I did with it, <laughs> I didn't do anything in an official capacity in terms of the school. But what I did with it, because I had another child in grade six who had expressed different kinds of things. Um, I can talk to you about that. But what I did with it is um, I, I, I communicated with John Mack. And we had, I had interviewed him um, several years prior to that on, the, on one of the radio programs that I was uh, co-hosting. And uh, he was very interested. And we exchanged emails and, and, and telephone calls. And um, I said, well, how do I, how do I deal with this? So he invited me down to his uh, Cambridge office, and we sat and we talked about it um, for two days. You learned at the foot of the master. You betcha. <laughs> Listen, uh, Victor, stay tuned. Uh, stay, uh, stay where you are, rather. And when we come back, I, I want to uh, follow up with this story of this... Poor young child, grade two student you suspected was uh, the victim of an alien abduction while you were a principal at a, uh, a Catholic school here in this very city, Toronto, or just west of here. Victor Vigiani, Zealand News Network. My name is Richard Serrett, and this program is called The Conspiracy Show. Why don't you stay a while? All right. Victor Vigiani from Zealand News Network is here and a retired school principal uh, and sharing some rather chilling uh, experiences he had with young children who he believes were abducted by aliens. Now, this first case, uh, Tommy, in grade two, uh, arrives uh, in the morning late for class, mm-hmm. uh, looking extremely disheveled, to say the least. This was a disturbed child, had some had mul- a multitude of behavioral issues, uh, and now we're beginning to see why, perhaps. Mm-hmm. So this one day, he, he arrives late and tells you, I didn't get any sleep, it's not going to be a good day, the monsters came back. They showed up at the foot of my bed. They're hiding behind my dresser. How did they get into your room, you ask? Well, it starts with the bright lights outside, an orange light. You ask, did they come in through the window? Did they open the window? No, they come through the window. Okay, so then you ask, what did these creatures look like, and what did he say? Well, basically, um, this is when I started all began to tie things together when he described them as, as small monsters, and that, to me, meant something. And I tried not to lead him, which is very um, very difficult to do. You know, you, you really have to kind of phrase your questions properly in order not to, to lead. Once I got into the mode of trying to find out what he was actually really saying, I, I, you, you try not to lead him. So I said, well, how do they come in? They, 
Do they come? Do they open the window? No, they come through the windows. That was my first clue. That and the orange lights. And then um, one of the other features of a typical abduction uh, scenario that, that has been reported to me before by adults is that these beings stand beside or at the foot of the bed, and there's usually three of them. And I asked them, how many are there? He said, there was three of them, mm. which once again, it was another, these all have some sort of similarity uh, to, to other abduction experiences. Did you ask him to draw them? Yes, I did. I, I asked him to say, what do they look like? And he, you know, Tommy wasn't really someone who could do things academically very well, but he could, you know, he could simulate it was. And basically he drew the head of this typical gray that was, you know, very narrow chin, broad forehead with the larger eyes, the very, very black um, no ears, uh, that kind of thing. And when children describe monsters, and uh, you know, I, th- I have children of my own who did that, they, or even children in kindergarten, where they, when you talk about monsters, there's always something tall, hairy, and strange with big teeth. And it's under the bed. It's in the closet. That's right. Yeah. No, this was very specific. This little boy went went right down the alley in terms of uh, describing what other typical um, experiencers uh, experiences were like. And uh, that's uh, he'd hit it to it in a very, very um, to draw it in a very, very specific way. And then, so you asked me, you know, what did I do? I said, well, I was very perplexed by the whole thing. That's actually that's the last time I talked to Tommy about the issue. I never really broached the issue with him again. Do you regret that? Um, from a professional point of view, no, I don't regret it. From a personal point of view, yes, I do regret it, because if I were to have uh, pursued it with him, and this is something very, uh, very, very sensitive. Because of the, sure, you're the you're the principal in a Catholic school, and mm-hmm. you've got a student who you believe is an alien abductee. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't imagine. Yeah, yeah. The blowback if you you know if something oh. like that were to get out and you oh, were for sure. counseling him or oh, that would have been horrendous. It could have, it could have meant my career at the time. <laughs> right, sort of a, a a version of what Dr. John Mack was going oh. through at Harvard. Well, I was warned about that. I was warned about that by friends. Because uh, I'd shared this experience um, that, that I had had with this child with other persons who weren't in education or, and who were in education. And it was very clear that, Victor, you don't touch this issue. And, and I agreed with them because I really couldn't. Not only could I not uh, you know, pursue this with, with Tommy uh, from the point of view of me helping this child, um, I, I had other uh, th- things on my plate in order to help this child. There were some severe parental issues with this child um, in terms of the mother and the father and the lack of parenting and some really, really deleterious attempts to control this child at home and in his own neighborhood and with the things that were happening with the child. It wasn't just the child. It was a whole lack of a family environment. Can you share any of that with us? Um, Well, I testified in court um, about um, the situation with the child. And um, he eventually became a ward of the uh, ward of the court, uh, and because of the the lack of parenting, and the things that I found out that were going on, not only just from uh, neighbors, and neighbors would call the school and say this little fellow Tommy would be running in the neighborhood wild, he'd be home alone. These are all child abuse issues, sure, of course. And um, grade I, two, he's in grade two, that's so he's correct. he's seven years old. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. A uh, little small, wiry little guy, just uh, with fire in his eyes. You know, a good kid, but just you know, just didn't get get the right breaks in life. Um, in any case, um, the the way that I did help the, this little boy was because there were some very very serious parental issues and abuse issues going on, 
And when you receive information about that kind of abuse, uh, the, the, the legislation in, in Ontario demands that you act as, a, as, a, as, an edu- as an educator or a doctor or any, you know, you have the same responsibility if you found out something was going on in your neighborhood. As soon as you become aware of it, you are under the compulsion of law to report it to the Children's Aid Society, which I did do. Let me stop you there and ask you a, um, a question that I'm, I'm guessing many people listening are, are, are wondering. Okay, so here we have a child who believes that he saw what may have been aliens at the foot of his bed, mm-hmm. was abducted, uh, and then, as you're telling us, that obviously a victim of, of abuse, mm-hmm. neglect, abandonment, emotional, psychological, oh. the, the whole nine yeah. yards. He went a horror it. show mm-hmm. for this poor little guy. You betcha. Must have just devastated you, mm-hmm. not being able to, you know, to scoop him up and, and hold this little guy. But mm-hmm. how do we know that he wasn't suffering from some sort of a disassociative disorder that that caused him to hallucinate or to fantasize about these creatures at the end of his bed? Yeah, um, that's a very good question. And that's one thing that, that ran through my mind because of all of the, the abuse issues that were going on at the time. They were simultaneously going on, that, that just uh, didn't start then. They were going on all year. And even when he was in grade one, when he came to us towards the end of the year of grade one, he moved into grade two. Um, uh, so, in answer to your question, um, a lot of the adults that I that I had dealt with um, in, in trying to assist them through all of this, and it was very difficult. And the only training that I had was basically my counseling uh, skills as as an educator, as a teacher, you know, with my my, um, my postgraduate degree. And that was just counseling. It wasn't psychiatric. It wasn't psychological training at all. It was just uh, I could sit down and talk to people to thresh out issues that were, you know that were difficult for them. And you have to do that as a teacher, as an educator. You, have, you get good at it after a while. Um, so I, I used those skills to try to, um, you know, get to the issues of what was going on with, with this child. And um, whether, whether I should pursue it in one way in terms of, well, is he clinically not well? And I believe that, that this little boy, uh, Tommy, w- w- there were some clinical issues definitely going on. But then you take a look at the abuse issue um, and you try to separate that from the clinical stuff and are they related? And then you've got this whole wedge of this, this sort of ET, extraterrestrial, alien, whatever it might be, wedged in the middle. You have to make some decisions about which side it, it falls on. And the only thing that I could rely on in terms of my own understanding of what was going on was the fact of the similarities of this little guy's you know, story, a great, you know, a seven-year-old kid, and the similarities with, um, with the adult experience of what the abduction experience was all about. And he told virtually the same story as, he's, as the adult. So I had to lean in that direction in terms of believing isn't the right word, but understanding what he'd gone through. And uh, so that, that's the way I leaned toward it. That it wasn't just a clinical thing that was, quote-unquote, wrong with him uh, because he told a very similar story. Um, and there was another child in the school who, had, who, did, who said something else about the whole scenario. So they, they, he was in grade six, a different, different situation altogether. Yeah, we, and we will get to that case. Sure. Uh, but uh, in your experience in dealing with adults who may have been abductees and in your conversations with Dr. John Mack and his studies, mm-hmm. uh, is there – is that one of the commonalities, that people who are abducted are involved in some sort of an abusive relationship? That's one of the characteristics. Yes, um, you, you you will find you will find many individuals who have had uh, some sort of uh, difficulty in childhood, be, whether it be abuse of some kind uh, or just some sort of disassociative um, situation with their parents, 
And, and, and the reason that this is very important, Richard, is because um, the, the abduction phenomenon appears to be familial. So when you, you know, if you're, if you're a parent, either the mother or the, or the, or the father or both, um, and you have um, uh, these experiences, the chances of your child going through the same thing, then this is part of the research. You can read that in, in John's book or in many of the other studies that have been done uh, on the abduction phenomenon. It is familial. It, go, it goes from one f- uh, family member to another. So if mom and dad or if a child was abducted, chances are that one or both of the parents uh, in, in studies have been shown that they've had, had experiences also. So you can see that this thing runs uh, runs like a river. It, it's, it's, there, it, it runs in the family kind of thing. So, so so if, if you're a parent, let's say you've been an abductee, you've had you're a, a repetitive experiencer with ETs, uh, that obviously is going to do a number on your psyche. So in terms of your parenting skills, I mean, you're going to be maybe emotionally distant, uh, maybe mm-hmm. you're going to take – because you don't know what's going on, you're going to take that frustration out on your child. And so the abuse is visited upon the child. As a result of the abduction phenomenon, it's not that the abuse causes a perception of an abduction or an ET experience. That, that's that's my that's my understanding of, of um, much of the research that Bud Hopkins did. Uh, David Jacobs has done that also. Um, they're on one side of the coin in terms of what the what the whole experience means in terms of a positive or negative experience, because I know they disagreed with how John handled the whole John Mack handled the situation. But yeah, in answer to your question. It, it it's not necessarily the cause of the abuse because adults who go through this um, they have all kinds of problems in the rest of their life they're, they they you know, their own credibility they they doubt themselves they go to work and they express these feelings about it or they have behaviors that maybe um, uh, don't fit in with the workplace they don't talk about the experience but they just can't fit in um, and they know they don't fit in and a lot of the adults that I dealt with uh, approximately twelve of them to the person they all had some sort of difficulty managing managing this in their life and understanding it and even accepting the fact that it some of them still to this day that i that uh, you know I, I can still believe that they just will not accept the fact that they that they've had these kinds of encounters that's interesting that that, that you say they are very very hesitant to talk about it very they so. don't talk about mm-hmm. it you got to pull it out of them and even then because i get approached all the time mm-hmm. by people who claim that they are abductees and they you can't shut them up they just want to talk about it talk mm-hmm. about it and talk about it is that a red flag for you if someone is is a little too forthcoming with that kind of, kind of information does that does that sort of erode their credibility as a as a potential abductee uh, a, a, a quick answer to the question is yes. Um, most of the people who that, that I've dealt with, um, they're very reluctant. They will approach you, and I, I would get phone calls uh, by people or referrals by, by people. You've got to talk to so-and-so because of such and such. And when you approach them, um, they're, they're very, very reluctant at the beginning to, to articulate what, what, what they're going on, what's going on in their lives because of the, uh, the ridicule factor. You know, the people just think that they'll be made fun of or automatically. That's what happens within the family, within friends, at the workplace. You just don't talk about it. But once you get through and allow them to um, feel that you're not judgmental, and when they feel that you are not making judgments about what they've been through, then the floodgates open. 
Victor Vigiani is uh, with us, the executive director of Zeland Communications, a frequent uh, a guest here on the program and a guest host, sits in from time to time. Uh, and we're really focusing uh, on him and his experiences tonight, um, rather than uh, just having him in as a, as a, as a co-host. Uh, because we've never talked about this on the radio uh, together anyway, his experiences as a school principal in dealing with children who may have been abductees. Now, after that experience with Tommy, mm-hmm. did you start to, to then think back about, oh, there was little Johnny and Peter, uh, <laughs> these other behavioral issues, maybe they too were abducted. Did you talk with other educators who had s- similar suspicions? I mean, how widespread is this? Well, <laughs> that's a f- tremendous... And this came towards the end of my... Uh, you know, before I retired, I'd say probably about four or five years before I actually retired uh, from the position of principal in the school system. And thinking back to what I'd been through at that particular school and thinking back at all the other schools that I'd been to, and then all these children start popping up like little flowers in a garden. You know, my goodness, this, this is this, this is this boy here, and all the behaviors kind of meld together. And I would have given my right arm to sit down and talk with any number of these children to find out exactly what might have been going on in their lives at that time. But I'd be just guessing. You know, it's something that's how long is a piece of string? You just don't know. <laughs> All right. We'll uh, take a time out, come back. More of my conversation with a good friend of the program, Victor Vigiani, retired school principal, executive director, Zeland Communications, the alien abduction phenomenon, and school children. Stay with us. Well, you can try and get through, but it seems like our phone system has um, is fried at the moment. So uh, nobody can call in. We can't call out. We are prisoners uh, here in Liberty Village. Ah, irony. Um, actually, I'm irony deficient. My doctor just told me. Uh, Victor Vigiani is, uh, is here 35 years, an educator in the Catholic school system here in Ontario, uh, a school principal. And uh, telling us some chilling accounts uh, of, um, well, this is heartbreaking. More than anything, it's chilling, but it's also heartbreaking. You have small children, uh, potentially alien abductees. And we, we heard about Johnny, this grade two student, uh, eventually became a ward of the state, well, a ward of the, uh, the government uh, here in Ontario. Do we, do, we, do, do we know what happened to, uh, to uh, little Johnny? Uh, actually, we've been calling him Tommy, but that's okay. Tommy, <laughs> Tommy sorry. <laughs> Doesn't matter. That's not his real name, but in any case. Um, no, we don't know. Uh, we, we know that he was removed uh, from, the, from the home, and he was removed from the school. And once the, uh, the courts do that, um, basically it's just a child starts another life uh, outside of the, uh, the, the, the atmosphere that he, that, he was, um, that he was brought up in. Now, uh, I, I know that there's another case. This was a six-year-old student, and I want to talk to you but, uh, about that, but I just something else dawned on me that mm-hmm. uh, I need to ask you. When we were talking about uh, Dr. John Mack earlier with um, a filmmaker and trying to make his uh, life into a, a Hollywood movie, uh, and, and, and you told me about the aerial school in Zimbabwe and these, these school children that had an encounter, uh, an experience with a UFO or a, a craft of some sort and were communicated telepathically with, mm-hmm. with the occupants of that craft. Uh, and this commonality, again, of uh, a message from these ETs, you know, we're making a mess of the environment and, and uh, we've got to, you know, we've got to heal the earth and so forth. How do we square that message with the, the human wreckage that's, that, that happens in the wake of these abductions. I mean, yeah. it doesn't square. Are these the same? Are these the same ETs? 
uh, that are communicating with school children with this positive message that that are leaving this this horrible horribleness in its wake. Mm-hmm. That's something that I've struggled with um, virtually since I got involved in this. It's one of the reasons why I stopped doing it um, because it, it in in a way it doesn't square. And I think that part of the part of the whole, that whole question is, you know, it's. It's it's the line between good and evil, you know. It is where where is the line between good and evil, and what and if there is a line between good and evil, what's the margin of error when something is evil and it becomes good, or does something good become evil? You're you're dealing with um, the concepts of good and evil, which are very very structured in our materialistic world, and uh, what we perceive as evil or wrong or unjust or whatever. It, it, from what I've learned. It may be just the whole integrated experience of our life that's good and evil, and that evil sometimes plays a role, an instructive role in our life. And um, what some of these abductees have been through is, in fact, um, wreckage, as you that's a great word, because these people do become ruined. However, what does happen, and I think if, if people read, um, I think it's chapter 13 in uh, John Mack's book, um, uh, Abductions. It's chapter 13, uh, page 293 it starts on. And it's about a fellow named Peter. And he was a manager of a hotel. And Peter was initially traumatized by the situation that, that he, that he, when he was taken. He was absolutely traumatized by it. But then as time went on and John worked with him and tried to discover more and more about what was going on, Peter began to realize that the whole transformational um, uh, process that was going on, initially it was a very negative experience, but eventually Peter got to learn that the, the stress that he was being put under transformed him into a different kind of person and he began to understand why these beings were doing what they were doing. Now, you read chapter 13, you'll see exactly why. Uh, but it became a, a non-victim situation. And that's one of so the... So you can come out the other side, but only only if you're if you're being shepherded by someone like Dr. John Mack. But there aren't a lot of Dr. John Macks out there. That's part of the ridiculous <laughs> nature of the preposterous nature of this whole of this whole phenomenon. We, we don't get shepherded. Uh, we don't get shepherded a lot. And, you know, we just don't, some people don't have the opportunity. And I would, I would venture to say that there are thousands, if not millions of people out there who are still among the homeless. I mean, I I was in, I was in San Francisco uh, over the past two weeks. And the number of homeless people that that are there walking around screaming at walls uh, with megaphones uh, talking to you about Jesus Christ is coming and while you're standing in line waiting for a a show, They're, they're, they're all over the place. And these are the people who have been released into the into the rest of the world, and now I don't know if they've been abducted or not. But this is some of the human carnage that's out there, and the millions of people who are not getting the kind of help that they need to understand: a, first of all, that they have had experiences like this, and it may be related to their to their psychosis. It may not be. We just don't know. That's the whole problem. We just don't know exactly what it is and what it means to the whole scheme of things because we have this this arrogance that we know everything. Okay, we, we, we understand the realm of, of everything. That's what science tells us. But we don't. We don't know everything that's going on in the cosmos. We're just one small bit of mud going around the sun, and we're just sort of dancing around trying to figure out what comes next. And we can't even figure out what happens after this corporeal entity we call bodies. Um, you know, what, what happens after that? What happens when, once this container goes? Do, do I live on? Do I, what, what, is there heaven or hell? I mean, it's all these unanswered questions, and we seem to think that we've got all the answers, and we don't. So when you talk about have people been taken by 
extraterrestrials, uh, the evidence is in the, in the eyes of the people that you're talking to. You eventually began or begin to see these people are authentic. They really have gone through something that we just don't understand. And when you get the evidence of the similarities, you say, listen, this is, this is, it points in this direction. We're not absolutely sure, but it points in this direction. And you have to pursue it. You can't just leave it alone. All right, when we come back, we'll talk about another case uh, that you experienced uh, as an educator in the Catholic school system, another student, grade 6, uh, who may have been an alien abductee. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show, my conversation with Victor Vigiani. Stay where you are. Victor Vigiani from Zealand Communications is no stranger to the program, uh, but now he's uh, being interviewed. He's the one sitting in the other chair uh, being asked tough questions, and we are discussing his experiences as as an educator in the Catholic school system uh, for some 35 years as a principal for part of that time, and uh, his encounters with students, young students, who may have been the victim of alien abductions. Now, we talked about uh, Johnny, or Tommy, sorry, Tommy, who uh, the grade two student we call Tommy. Uh, there's another case involving a grade six student. Uh, we'll call him Peter. Sure, that's fine. All right. Tell uh, us about, about Peter. A, a very different situation, and it came about um, by looking at some of the artwork that was going on in the classroom. And a lot of times, uh, uh, children... Whenever any type of assessment is done of, of children, one of the things that the psychologists or uh, the psychometricians that we used to employ uh, to, to get at these issues, one of the things, in addition to asking questions, so they, they're asked to draw things. Because artwork is a, is a very, um, or the ability to draw, is, is very instrumental in understanding um, how, the, how the child sees himself or herself in the context of their friends, of their family, um, uh, you know, they may look at the, a drawing, draw your family, okay? And uh, if, the, if the child draws himself in the family and they have brothers and sisters and they're, and they're all the same size and mommy and daddy uh, are much larger than, than them, they, you know, there's a, there's a certain significance to that. Uh, if they see that if they draw themselves as larger than the rest of the family and mom and dad are smaller, that sometimes that happens. That means something. Yeah, it's it's the the child art is 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 ther- is um, is definitely a pathway to to therapy and understanding where a child is at, especially if there are symptoms of of, of things going on that we're trying to find out about. Artwork is one of the things that you that you go to in, in addition to asking them all kinds of other questions or writing tests or whatever or assessment tests. Now, th- th- this individual child, um, uh, Peter, grade six, um, I noticed uh, a, a sort of a, a drawing that he had done. And it was a big circle. It was the Earth, and he had all the continents drawn on it. And then he had um, children standing on top of the uh, at the top of the Earth. Okay, that sort of if you looked at it like a clock. Right. So there were children uh, standing, let's say, from ten o'clock on the clock, right around you know upright on the edge of the Earth, you know, till about two o'clock. And then might, might, there might have been what ten children that he had drawn, but <laughs> one of them was a little alien creature. Okay. Okay. Typical, you know, big buggy eyes, a large head, and so on. And I sort of picked up on it. I said, you know, what's what's going on with that? I asked the teacher. And said, oh, that's that's this Peter's artwork. I said, oh, interesting. And um, I, w- I wouldn't say Peter had any type of necessarily um, behavioral anomalies, but it was a rather unique, unique child. Very very bright, a good good family life. Um, no necessarily um, deleterious things going on in the home. 
Um, but um, I had opportunities to speak with him about certain things that he was doing in the playground, you know, not getting along with others and, you know, not, nothing serious. I mean, this was just typical stuff. Mm-hmm. Nothing, nothing that I would categorize as really um, problematic, but just regular discipline issues. Was this a regular theme in his artwork? Um, the aliens, or was it just the one? There's this one drawing that I saw. Okay. But then after that, I got him to do two things um, because of this, what, he, what he was talking to me about. Um, and uh, it happened one day in, in my office, and um, he, 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 he was very upset. I, talked, I was talking to him about something that happened in the playground. And he said, yeah, I don't watch TV anymore, and I, 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 I don't, don't like what I said, why not? He said, because my aunt comes on the television all the time. Said, oh dear! Your, your aunt. Okay, fine. What do you mean? He said, "Well, I can hear my aunt and see my aunt on the television. You know, you know, you, you get that sort of uh, that, that snowy effect right. on the television, and he could see his aunt through the television, and he would be, she would be talking to him about that. And I thought that was rather, rather strange. Indeed. Yeah, it, very strange. So I didn't think anything of it. So I said, "Just draw me a picture of it." So he did. And um, and it was basically him sitting at the back of him, his head, you know, he's blonde, and he was looking at a TV off his, off his left shoulder, and it was a fuzzy picture of a television, and it was his, his aunt. It was a very foggy picture of his aunt. I find it didn't think anything of it. And uh, that was it. That was it for that particular uh, instance. And, um, and th- then he said to me, it's almost like I'm feeling like I'm walking in a forest sometimes. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, I've, I've been walking in, in, in the forest. And um, I said, have you really been walking in a forest? You no, know, he says, I just I'm think, I think I'm walking in a forest. And I sit down by a tree, a big, huge tree. And then this thing comes around. Like it's a, it's, I said, what, what kind of thing? He said, it's a kind of a glowing thing. Mm. And I said, okay, fine. Okay, what does that mean? What do you mean? How far away is it? What does it look like? And then he begins to describe, very similar to the aerial school, these things hopping around outside of the of the of the craft of this. this of these this. things, creatures. That's right. Yeah, they're creatures. They they come out of the of this bright light, and they they, they bounce around. And this is virtually uh, similar to, uh, almost similar to what the aerial school children were talking about. They, these beings got out of the craft, and they were hopping. They weren't really wa- walking. Okay. So um, now. I would not categorize this as an abduction experience necessarily, um, but it could be. It could have been a dream. We ju- we just don't know. But once again, um, it was it was similar to the other uh, characteristics of the, the alien. Let's call it an alien encounter, or at right. least an ET encounter, right. not necessarily an abduction. So there's I, I make a differentiation there. There there are some people who have this kind of encounter. It's not necessarily being taken. Right, a close encounter. Yeah, a close encounter. Third kind. Yeah, exactly. So uh, back to that picture with the the children Mm -hmm. hovering above the earth and one of them looked like an alien. Did Mm -hmm. you talk to him directly about that? Yeah. And what did he say? Um, uh, He said, well, this is like – this is what I see. This is what I saw in the – when I'm in the forest. Ah, okay. That's how we link the two together. Did you have other conversations with, with Peter? No, I didn't. Um, it was uh, it was it was the same year as with with the other little fellow, and there was a point at which Richard, I just had to stay away from it. I, if I if I continued to pursue it, um, it would have been it would have been trouble for me. When you went to see uh, the late Dr. John Mack at mm-hmm. Harvard to get some advice on mm-hmm. how do I deal with these kids, what did he tell you? <laughs> he, <laughs> I remember that's a great question. Um, 
I was sitting in his office and uh, and we were talking about the artwork and you know both of the children. And then he asked me, he said, Victor, what kind of political capital do you have in your school board? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. And I said, well, as an administrator, I, you know, I would imagine that I'm relatively well-respected. You know, I was promoted and, you know, I'm, I, I think I do a pretty good job and I, I do a lot of committee work. And um, he, said, he said to me, well, w- would you feel comfortable bringing this forward? You know, would you like, – would you – and uh, he, he was the one who got right to the point right, right away, you know. And to be quite honest, I said, I don't, I don't think that would be possible for me. I don't think I'd have, the, first of all, the, the, the clinical background to even make an assessment as to what this might be. I have an intuitive feeling as to what it might be and even a personal feeling of what I know it might be. But if I started to make this an issue, um, uh, child, you know, child abduction becoming a phenomenon within, the, within schools, um, I can... I can tell you right now, it would ruffle feathers from here up to the Ministry of Education. Your career would have been over. I think so. I think so. Um, and it might even be over uh, <laughs> retroactively because of tonight. <laughs> well, I can't yeah. touch you now. Yeah. Uh, but, well, you uh, – l- l- let me ask you again about these cases. When you mm-hmm. talked to Dr. John Mack, based mm-hmm. on your description yeah. of these cases, what was his opinion? Um, the, the, the one about Peter, he wasn't really – um, we didn't talk about that one much at all because there was really no um, necessarily evidence that this could have been other things, okay? And he wasn't really, you know, I, I was more focusing on the one with, with little Tommy. I really right. did. And um, he, he, he was convinced that there was something. And what he wanted to do was, you know, he, or what he would have done is speak with the, with the, with the parents, he would he would be someone who would have, if the child would have exhibited this kind of thing, if it come to him in a in his in a in his practice, he what he would have done is is speak with the parents, and that's something that um, could could have been an option if that this happened in a different time and place. The parents might have been involved in it, and if they were caring parents, or even if they weren't caring parents, it might have been something that he could have broached with, with them in order to find out exactly if this had been a familial kind of thing. So um, that that's what I, I think. You know, he could have backed it up that way in terms of speaking with the parents in order to draw out them to find out what they had gone through as children or even as adults in terms of their, their experiences. Well, after you retired and word got out that you were, this was an area that you had some expertise yeah. in, people who suspected they or a loved one was abducted started to reach out to you. Uh-huh. And you dealt with a, a, about another dozen cases or so. Approximately, yeah. Um, what... Um, but then finally you pulled away. Yeah. Why? It just got too stressful. Um, getting calls in the middle of the night from people um, uh, crying, uh, emotionally distraught, telling me stories that I just, I just, <laughs> I just couldn't, I couldn't believe the, the kinds of experiences that these people would have gone through, especially the um, um, the ones by some of the men that who who had experienced things in in terms of their genitals and so on and so forth, uh, and this is something that um, is is goes right to the heart of the issue with with a lot of the men that are taken, um, the way the the experiments um, are, are performed on them in their genitals and obtaining semen and so on and so forth. Uh, that that kind of thing um, is just gut gut wrenching. Uh, what do you what do you say to someone like that? Where do you, you wh- where do you 
tell them to go? Who do you tell them to talk to? Well, if, if I felt that there was a uh, something very, very serious going on, um, I, I would refer them to you know to a psychologist. Uh, go go talk to someone who has a professional skills. All I was was just uh, an open ear. I listened and I, I, I attempted to try to remove some of the trauma in terms of them becoming victims of this. You can you can sink into a, a place where you become a voluntary victim. You can you let it take take you over. Sure. What I moved towards was trying to not make them feel uh, as they were victims. As 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 you move through this whole experience, that's what Matt, that what I learned from Mac is that eventually you 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 take on the the role of a non-victim in this. And once you get to that point, it's easier to understand, if not accept, it's easier to understand what what might be going on. But if if this phenomenon is real, mm-hmm. and these people are victims initially of an alien abduction, a psychologist isn't going to be able to help them. You're right. Yeah. And that's the whole dead end part of this whole thing uh, is that there really isn't anyone, to my knowledge, who can really go through this and, you know, wring the towel out until you get all the water out. It just it's just not going to happen. There, there, there may be some explanation to all of this once this issue of contact uh, gets resolved. We'll get to understand what's really going on. Um, and I don't know how far away that is. You know, it's just <laughs> you, you you go through it, and it's it's a very it's a very gut wrenching situation. It's like it's hard to tell the difference between when they're tightening the screws or loosening them. You really don't know when things are getting worse or when they're getting better. Sometimes you really can't tell the difference. And I think there's going to come a point where we're going to know about this stuff. Where we're going to have oh, there's the big eureka. The oh, aha, oh, that's why. I think that's coming. But um, I, I just don't see that on the horizon um, in, in my lifetime. I, I and in the meantime, there's really nowhere for these people to go. There, there are a few. There's Dr. David Jacobs in, right. in Philadelphia. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and now I'm suddenly realizing what a large hole Dr. John Mack has left uh, – Courtesy of one drunk driver in England in 2004. That's right. It is a it's like a, a big hole in, in reality. I mean, if this man was still around, I I believe that he would have become more of an activist uh, in, in in this and uh, and and perhaps I would have um, taken on the, the challenge of of uh, moving along with him and, and raising this issue in the school board. It's still something that I'm convinced if if someone um, did do this. Uh, raise the issue at that level, especially with the, with the psychologists that are involved in, 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 in the Ministry of Education here in Ontario, uh, in, in boards of education, if the, and the social workers that are involved and the, and the clinical uh, psychometricians that are involved, if these people were to understand what's going on, not only to the adults but to the children, um, I wonder if the same kind of resistance that John uh, Mack met would, would, would come into play uh, here in Ontario in the school systems because they're out there. They, the children are, are, are out there that have, have had these experiences. There's just absolutely no doubt about it. Wow. Victor, thank you so much for uh, hanging out with me this last hour. And uh, it's been enlightening. Wow, yeah. And disturbing. Victor Vigiani, Zeland News Network, Zeland Communications. Uh, quickly, uh, the, uh, the website for the, uh, the blog. Just Google um, uh, Zeland Communications. Just Google that and... Uh, it's got a long URL to it, so just just Google Zeland Communications and you'll get right to it. All right, Tim Spreen, thanks for production. I'm back next week with a brand new show. Hope you'll be along for the ride. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed, nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite, I'm coming home. Good night.
This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.